This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Welcome, Talk Catholic, the website.com, your host, Tim Kilcoyne. No agendas here, just the straight and narrow, through Mary to Jesus, the Catholic faith proclaimed and preserved. Hope to see you here every week. Catholic.com with Tim Kilcoyne. It is our Saint of the Month Saturday, and who would it not be, of course, in January, but St. Timothy. But before we get there, I'd like to introduce a mini-series that I want to uh, lay bare because it's just vital for understanding our church in the days ahead. I want to take a very hard look at this synod that was convoked in the fall of 2021 called the Synod on Synodality, which not too many really know the definition of. Initially, coming to a conclusion next fall, and now that's been extended another year. You got to wonder whether it'll ever come to a close. Could this be Vatican III into perpetuity? There are many, many topics that are of vital importance in the deliberations that are going on worldwide relative to the Synod. So I'm going to try to do the best I can to throw the microscope on this uh, at the beginning of a variety of shows, and uh, this one being the first uh, prior to our St. Timothy biography. The Synod will be conducted in a variety of phases. Phase one was the diocesan phase, and let there be no doubt that this Synod could well bear the fruit of a third schism of the Catholic Church in her history, at whatever its conclusion might be. And we need to pay attention to this process because it could well end up changing many teachings of the Church officially, at least for the heretics, which will call the true Church, faithful Catholics, to a decision. In other words, if the decisions of the Synod do not conform with the age-old 2023 onward, plus your old unchanging deposit of faith, then everybody in the church is going to be faced with an unbelievably important spiritual decision as to which Catholic church do you belong to. Because I have shared in many previous shows my experiences going back to Boston College as an undergraduate theology student. I was well aware back then, late 1970s, that big-time problems were on the horizon down the road. I didn't know how many years it would take, but I did know for sure that the theology books that I was assigned during that time were completely off the charts, heretical. In fact, I just ordered an old book, which was virtually the Bible of that time, called Human Sexuality, New Directions in Catholic Thought, a yellow-covered book put out by the Catholic Theological Association of America. You always want to brush up on the enemy's initial playbook. And this could be the founding document, the Magna Carta, of the woke agenda, driven by extremely radical types all too close to the Holy Father. These new ideas on human sexuality in their own new tradition, not the Catholic one. And speaking of the defiant, the cardinal 
from Luxembourg happens to be the head of the Synod, and uh, I do believe that Luxembourg has 1% of its population Catholic. I wonder why. You see, the Cardinal from Luxembourg is a prototype of virtually every professor I had at BC in those 1970s. They were radical, and they haven't changed. So, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not a uh, preacher of doom ever, but I do believe that these people, who are the baby boomers, let's not forget, just like in the secular realm, they don't quit. Precisely because they're guilty. If they finally give it up and acknowledge wrongdoing in their erroneous teachings, they're going to have to repent. And I'm sorry to say in all my years in the vineyard, that doesn't happen too often. Of course, none of their efforts, mostly parish closings, clearly convey the fact that there was no fruit. Let's remember right out of the documents of Vatican II, the church exists to evangelize. And we have the head of our church condemning anybody who proselytizes, which is really code for evangelizes. This is how radical they are. The Holy Father was almost every professor I had at BC in the 1970s. He hasn't changed. The problem is he's now the Pope. And while some of his thoughts are most provoking, he treats everyone like they're part of that graduate symposium. Well-educated, ready to share round the table, not imposing any personal view, of course. And he's got many around him at the Vatican of the same ideological bent. What happened to celebrating diversity, especially with those of the dubia. These were the people that John Paul II was waving his finger at down in El Salvador, okay? Liberation theologian sympathizers, i.e. socialist communist sympathizers. And yet, they don't change their theology. They don't change their vision. They don't get on board with faithfulness to the magisterium of the church. And they just keep digging their heels in and grinding away at 1970s theology. And part of that theology, as I have referred in a show on educational pedagogy, has to do with really the understanding, it's called epistemology, how you come to an understanding of the truth. And to try to simplify as carefully and succinctly as I can, you have two classic dichotomies at work in how you come to know the truth. And one would be the classical, age-old, very Thomistic, deductive approach, which starts with the very concept of objective truth as knowable, and in fact, as already known, a priori, that's called in Latin. And then you proceed from there as to what other possible truths are emanating from the primary truth. Example, the objective truth. Premarital sex is intrinsically evil. It is a mortal sin because it violates the covenant of sexual relations established only in the context of marriage. One man, one woman, committed to each other for life till death do them part. This is a blueprint that God himself has set in motion, and human beings can deduce it, this natural law, by simply looking at the human experience of couples. And reason will deduce all of this by looking at the experience of conjugal relations outside of marriage, and the chaos and instability that it creates. It is a deductive process which requires those of greater knowledge and wisdom to pass on that objective truth. Which is affirmed by divine revelation, i.e. the scriptures. Well, this common sense intellectual approach to the truth was completely upended in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and 
pretty much right up to the time of this synod. Because the synod is based more around the other epistemology, and that is the inductive approach, where you don't start with anything is true. It's all pretty much the round table. Consensus. I referred in a previous show that I was just in the sixth grade. And I we walked in on the on day one and saw that the, the desks were no longer in a symmetrical row as they would be in classical age-old education, but were put into box formation, rectangles of six desks where the students, three on one side and three on the other, would be looking at each other for the rest of the period. <laughs> And I said, well, you can understand where the learning was that year, out the window. In other words, the innovators of that approach at the grammar school level were going on the notion that everybody's pretty much a wise, Moses-like kind of guy or gal. And it's just a matter of going around the horn and listening to your wisdom. Well, that presupposes that they have the wisdom first. And sixth graders are barely able to put subjects and verbs together. So it just goes to show you the naivete of this approach at particular levels of development, i.e., you better be a graduate student in theology participating in a colloquium or symposium or whatever other name they like to give it to make clear that nobody's in charge, nor of leadership and wisdom. In any event, this synod is operating on the latter epistemology, which means anybody disenfranchised Catholics that don't practice the faith is virtually in control of coming up with their own conclusions as to what the church should now think as if we are finger to the wind. Not happening, not what God said to Peter, you are rock and the gates of hell are not going to prevail because he was the way and the truth and he doesn't change. So let us now get on with some unchanging truth by way of St. Timothy from Catholic.org website on St. Timothy. Born at Lystra, Lacinia, Timothy was the son of a Greek father and Eunice, a converted Jewess. He joined St. Paul when Paul preached at Lystra, replacing Barnabas, and became Paul's close friend and confidant. Paul allowed him to be circumcised to placate the Jews since he was the son of a Jewess, and he then accompanied Paul on his second missionary journey. When Paul was forced to flee Berea, Because of the enmity of the Jews there, Timothy remained, but after a time was sent to Thessalonica to report on the condition of the Christians there and to encourage them under persecution, a report that led to Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians when he joined Timothy at Corinth. Timothy and Erastus were sent to Macedonia in 58, went to Corinth to remind the Corinthians of Paul's teaching, and then accompanied Paul into Macedonia and Achaia. Timothy was probably with Paul when the apostle was imprisoned at Caesarea and then Rome, and was himself imprisoned but then freed. According to tradition, he went to Ephesus, became its first bishop, and was stoned to death there when he opposed the pagan festival of Catagonion in honor of Diana. Paul wrote two letters to Timothy, one written about 65 from Macedonia and the second from Rome while he was in prison awaiting execution. Timothy, meaning honoring God or honored by God, now I didn't put that in there, but yes, it's always been a consolation, was an early Christian evangelist and the first Christian bishop of Ephesus, who tradition relates died around the year A.D. 97. Timothy was a native of Lystra. When Paul and Barnabas first visited Lystra, Paul healed a person crippled from birth, leading many of the inhabitants to accept his teaching. When he returned a few years later with Silas, Timothy was already a respected member of the Christian congregation, as were his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice 
Eunice, both Jews. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, his mother and grandmother are noted as eminent for their piety and faith. Timothy is said to have been acquainted with the scriptures since childhood. In 1 Corinthians 16, verse 10, there is a suggestion that he was by nature reserved and timid. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord. Quote, Timothy's father was a Greek Gentile. Thus, Timothy had not been circumcised, and Paul now ensured that this was done according to Acts 16 verse 1 to 3, to ensure Timothy's acceptability to the Jews whom they would be evangelizing. Augustine extols his zeal and disinterestedness in immediately forsaking his country, his house, and his parents to follow the apostle to share in his poverty and sufferings. Timothy may have been subject to ill health or frequent ailments, and Paul encouraged him to use a little wine for his stomach's sake. When Paul went on to Athens, Silas and Timothy stayed for some time at Berea, and Thessalonica before joining Paul at Corinth. His relationship with Paul was close, and Paul entrusted him with missions of great importance. Timothy's name appears as a co-author on 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon. Paul wrote to the Philippians about Timothy, I have no one like him. When Paul was in prison and awaiting martyrdom, he summoned his faithful friend Timothy for a last farewell. The apocryphal acts of Timothy state that in the year 97 AD, the 80-year-old bishop tried to halt a procession in honor of the goddess Diana by preaching the gospel. Might we know exactly what St. Timothy would have said about the Pachamamas? This is exactly why we have to look at the totality of the church's deposit of faith, starting with the scriptures, as opposed to theology starting in the late 1960s, as if truth only started with the sexual revolution and every other revolution of that time. What might have happened to St. Timothy today? Indeed. The angry pagans beat him, dragged him through the streets, and stoned him to death. That is laying one's life down for the flock. Timothy is venerated as an apostle, saint, and martyr by the Eastern Orthodox Church with his feast day on the 22nd of January. The general Roman calendar venerates Timothy together with Titus by a memorial on the 26th of January, the day after the feast of the conversion of St. Paul. In the 4th century, the relics of Timothy were transferred from Ephesus to Constantinople and placed in the Church of the Holy Apostles near the tombs of Andrew and Luke. Later on in the 13th century, the relics seemed to have been taken to Italy by a count returning from the crusade and buried around 1239 in the Termoli Cathedral. The remains were discovered in 1945 during restoration works. Timothy is the patron invoked against stomach and intestinal disorders. Now, we don't really have canon of St. Timothy, although there was not too long ago in 2014, I believe, 2012, biblical scholars believe they found fragments in a cave at Horvat Susita near the Sea of Galilee that are parts of what they call the Gospel of Timothy, written around 40 uh, AD, shortly after Jesus' death and resurrection. And these would make them the oldest Christian writings in existence. In fact, they were written in Aramaic. But again, these are not part of the canon of a divine scripture. What we do have for sure are the writings of St. Paul to Timothy, and that's where we will return when we come back. This is WQPH Radio. 89.3 FM. St. Paul says to Timothy, a bishop must be above reproach. Do we really know what that phrase means, to be above reproach, above blame, above criticism? That a bishop is indeed of a most holy, dignified office, the episcopate of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as founded on Peter the Rock. This holy office passed on to the apostles. He is a man in line with 
the apostles, apostolic succeeding, and to embrace that office in accord with God's divine holy will, he must rise to the occasion of leadership. There is no choice in the matter, unless our Lord asks, like he did St. Maximilian Kolbe, is it a white or red martyrdom that you prefer? That's the choice. But in terms of what this person is like, he is a man above reproach. I stress this because I know that the very expression is another antiquated term in today's parlance, similar to referring to a person's character. We don't hear that expression whatsoever anymore, virtually. He or she is a person of high character, and we wonder what's wrong with the world. This character is, according to St. Paul, temperate, sensible, dignified, not quarrelsome, and no lover of money. He must not be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, or he may fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, need to be serious, not double-tongued. Not double-tongued. Oh, boy. In other words, two personas, split personality, one way with people in the world, another way with religious types. No, 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 no. Consistent character in season and out. No chameleons. And also, double tongue could be taken to mean simply not carrying through on your word. Say what you mean and mean what you say. Again, character is consistency about who you are. And you don't change according to your audience. And you've got to be sure, and this doesn't apply just to people in ministry, that your word is real. An old expression again, your word is your honor, your word is your character. St. Paul goes on. Not addicted to much wine, not greedy for gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then if they prove themselves blameless, let them serve as deacons. The women, likewise, must be serious, no slanderers, but temperate, faithful in all things. He says to Timothy, if I am delayed, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and bulwark of the truth. So in other words, ladies and gentlemen, we can't have a leadership that is tied to the world, politically or otherwise, whatever the sphere of knowledge. We have to be salt to the world. We have to stand apart and from the world so that we can be the teachers that we are called to be in the field of ministry. This includes myself as much as it does the bishops and priests, deacons and sisters, anybody in Catholic religious education or pastoral ministry. And so the idea that we don't hold the bar a little higher is nonsense. We have to be examples. And this is why it is such a sacrilege when we hear about scandals amongst our leaders. And this includes economic scandals as much as sexual and otherwise. Those Vatican Bank scandals were a complete outrage that went way under the radar for most faithful people. The fact that we have people that close to the Holy Father himself, and not to be piously naive, but what did any pope know, and when did he know it? Where the money was? And the greater outrage to have false allegations directed towards Cardinal Pell, who was trying to do his best to clean things up. What an outrage. And now the Vatican has had to pay out massive amounts for litigation already in debt that were incurred from bad investments or tie-ins with corrupt organizations or people themselves might have used the Vatican Bank because of its exemption from uh, auditing from every angle. That's why so many of the 
devious groups worldwide want to get their money into the Vatican Bank. It goes unscrutinized. So St. Paul was most clear about the qualities of a holy leader. Then in 2 Timothy, we see the leadership qualities more specific. St. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be urgent, in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort, I hope every deacon, priest, and bishop just heard that from St. Paul to Timothy. Convince, rebuke, exhort. Oh, my word. This is right out of a sermon by Father Joseph from EWTN not too long ago. These are three great qualities of a good sermon. You try to show the reasonableness of the situation, the position that the church holds, etc. You call out the sinful aberration of such. You look to the culture and point out where the devil is in our midst, violating the principle. And then you exhort and encourage. You give affirmation that the Holy Spirit, God, is sufficient. St. Louis de Montfort, the graces are there. Come to the sacraments especially confession and communion. This is what a good sermon is all about, ladies and gentlemen, for 2023. May we urge and encourage our pastors to let their priests speak in the Holy Spirit, not reading it off a script that somebody has written for them. On occasion, I'm sure that's most convenient. It's pretty hard to come up with a sermon every single day of the year, that's for sure. But They should not be a slave to someone else's script. They've been given the office of ordination. The Holy Spirit is there for them. Let them speak in the Holy Spirit. If there's anything that I would like to see different for Holy Mother Church in 2023 is that we recapture our evangelical impulse from, I guess, our evangelical brothers and sisters who know how to be free at least, in the Holy Spirit. God doesn't hold back his gifts if he has given them. And if you've been ordained, you've been given them. So please, God's people still wait for the very word truth to be uttered alongside love and mercy. They go together. We are not going to undo the situation at hand of the average age being about 60 plus in the pews unless these sermons are thoroughly relevant to the culture of death that is out there 24-7. St. Paul says, Be unfailing in patience and in teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own likings, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths. As for you, always be steady, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already on the point of being sacrificed, the time of my departure has come, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. You don't know, ladies and gentlemen, how inspiring those words have been to me from Paul to Timothy all these years, and I'm delighted to be doing it. For the fulfillment of my mission, to make his word known in season and out, without agenda, accurately, with enthusiasm. Sanctification is a constant process of conversion to the end. And in the spirit of the athlete that I've always been, to get past the goal line. At WQPH Radio 89.3 FM in 2023, may there be no doubt that we are your leadership Catholic radio station for the truth. God bless everyone. Let your light shine. 
that is what it's all about here at WQPH Radio 89.3 FM. But we need to hear your story. You want your voice to be his voice. That is making the faith known to others. Please, my number is 877-625-3727. Tim Kilcoin, TalkCatholic.com. Say, Mother Teresa told us, your ministry is your work right where you are. Grab on to this microphone. God bless.